Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast bringing you insurance news and an inside perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Imus. Today, we're uncovering distracted driving. A new report from the IIHS identifies how driving habits have changed and a path for insurers to tackle the issue. Plus, new developments in NAMIC's disparate impact case against HUD, why a change to the litigants won't disrupt our challenge. And former state regulator Jim Wren talks with Chuck Chamnus about his career developing national and international regulations and policies governing the insurance industry. But first, a quick check on the news. During his second State of the Union address, President Donald Trump conveyed familiar themes from his first two years in office. He pushed for a wall along the border with Mexico, took credit for America's expanding economy, and called for an end to foreign wars. And with another deadline looming next week to fund the government and avoid another shutdown, Trump says bipartisan unity is needed. If there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. It just doesn't work that way. We must be united at home to defeat our adversaries abroad. Meanwhile, in Washington, a couple of new developments related to Nantman. Meanwhile, in Washington, a couple of new developments related to NAMIC's litigation against the Department of Housing and Urban Development challenging HUD's proposed disparate impact rule. On February 1st, HUD submitted revised rules for an internal administrative review. Once the revised rules are published, NAMIC will review and submit comments. In addition, NAMIC has recently been informed that as a result of the merger between the Property Casualty Insurance Association and the American Insurance Association, the newly formed APCIA is withdrawing from the District of Columbia litigation with NAMIC. Tom Carroll, NAMIC General Counsel Federal, tells us what this means. Well, the, the D.C. case has developed the furthest, remains the best chance to judicially revoke the HUD rule, so NAMIC is going to continue to pursue this case, even if we have to do it alone. Um, we think that uh, we will pursue uh, all administrative litigation and advocacy efforts to address the serious problem with the ongoing rule as it presents to our members. The uh, NAMIC greatly appreciates the continuing ongoing support it's received from our members, and we remain committed to making every effort, including pursuing the D.C. case, to continue the pr- to protect members in this area. Warning drivers about the dangers of handling a phone hasn't discouraged them from doing so. That's according to a new study by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. IIHS found that the number of drivers manipulating cell phones increased by 57 percent from 2014 to 2018. The research shows drivers are talking on phones less but fiddling with them more which Highway Loss Data Institute senior research analyst David Kidd says is concerning. I mean, I think one of the main things that we try to understand in this study is, is really how distracted driving has changed over time, if it has at all. And I think a key takeaway is that we hear a lot about how distraction is becoming more prevalent. Um, based on this study, we don't see that occurring. Um, you do see some increase in, in the risky behaviors like manipulating a phone, um, but you know we 
it's it's I think it's important to know that distracted driving has been around for a long time. It's just been changing in nature, and it continues to change in nature as the things people have available to them evolve. Uh, and so, with this understanding, we can identify countermeasures that are going to be better at targeting the problem as a whole rather than individual activities like cell phone use. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration recently reported that 3,100 people were killed in crashes involving a distracted driver in 2017. However, the IIHS says that number is likely underestimated as it relies on drivers truthfully telling officers what they were doing or voluntarily handing their phones over for inspection. At the end of 2018, 15 states and the District of Columbia instituted bans on handheld devices while driving, and within two years of passing the legislation, several of those states reported a decrease in motor vehicle fatalities. NAMIC is working to get similar laws passed in more states this year. At almost every level of government, and on myriad issues from cybersecurity to the creation of the Federal Insurance Office, Jim Wren has spent his career working to support the insurance industry. On today's Unscripted, Chuck Chamnis talks with Jim about his experience in the regulatory field, where he has played a key role in developing national and international regulations and policies governing the insurance industry. Well, welcome to the show, Jim. It is... uh... So great to talk with you today and really tap into the you know, vast history that you have about our industry. You've been a, you know insurance executive, attorney, regulator, uh, now advisor to the uh, insurance sector. And, uh, of course, probably most notably for our audience, you know, former superintendent of insurance of the state of New York, a very important state for our industry. We had the distinction of being the last superintendent of insurance uh, uh, of New York. And so welcome to our podcast today. Uh, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, let's start with your experience uh, as a superintendent and, and really going to your work. Uh, you were a leader at the NEIC on many of the things that our member companies care about. Uh, I think the period of time that, that you know where you were active was a, a very... Um, important period in terms of some of the post-financial crisis regulation that uh, our members now face. Uh, I thought I'd start out with just a little discussion of, um, you know, enterprise risk management and specifically ORSA, uh, you know, the own risk solvency assessment. It's a new regulatory requirement back in the day. Uh, you worked on it both, you know, at the department with the NEIC and, you know, it's one of those that we cite as uh, having kind of uh, evolved from international um, sphere to you know, our U.S. regulatory system. So what, uh, looking back now, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, how do you see ORSA as uh, part of the insurance regulatory uh, ecosystem? Well, ORSA initially was part of Solvency too, and I was very involved on behalf of the NAIC uh, and the IAIS uh, in the Solvency II uh, discussion and with, in the U.S., the um, Establishing uh, modernization initiative, uh, and that's uh, one component of Solvency Two uh, that was looked at pretty favorably uh, by us as regulators here in the in the U.S. And we thought it'd be very helpful uh, for companies to do a self-assessment uh, of their risk. Uh, now, at the time, my goal was to, you know, hopefully uh, have companies do that, and in return, have a more risk-focused, targeted. Uh, regulatory exam um, uh, that really hasn't materialized. 
Um, it has been, um, I think, successful. Uh, companies, you know, are doing it and they're doing it both on a local basis or on a um, global basis, you know, depending on um, their market. Um, and initially, I, you know, the reaction has been somewhat positive. There was a, a period of time where they worked, uh, several companies worked with regulators to get some of the kinks out. Uh, and they were, and regulators are working, you know, with them to this day, really, uh, on making it as effective as it can be. It still is a bit of a learning process, both for the companies and the uh, regulators. Um, but again, the thing here was, it was initially not meant to be a real regulatory um, requirement, more a, a self-examination uh, of uh, the risks uh, that are unique to its organization. Um, and to hopefully benefit from the identification of these risks early on so that they can be controlled and then managed in a way that provides advantage to the company long term. Exactly. You know, looking at its implementation and, and the NEIC's deliberation on it, NAMIC was active in working to uh, get a size exemption, and we, we succeeded in that. Um, what's your view uh, now or then of, you know, proportionality, uh, which, you know, we have the great good fortune to represent um, the highest concentration of national riders of among any uh, property casualty insurance trade, but we also represent many small insurance companies, including many that you knew as a regulator in New York, uh, based upstate. So what, what did, do you think of the size exemption that uh, was part of Orsa? I think proportionality is very important in regulation. Uh, everything, you know, should be in proportion or in uh, taking into account uh, the nature and complexity of the risk that uh, that organization, um, you know, uh, deals with. Um, we came out with a circular letter uh, on enterprise risk management before ORSA and we didn't have a size exemption in it. Uh, it was the feeling in New York at the time that Everyone should undertake this analysis, but it should be done, uh, you know, the degree of, of um, effort, you know, that you, you put into it should be proportionate, again, with the nature and complexity of the risk that organization um, uh, presents. Uh, whether it's a, you know, $200,000, a $200 million company or a $2 billion company, um, again, it should be proportionate to the, to the risk uh, that uh, organization uh, presents. Um, having it, you know, uh, having a size uh, cutoff isn't the worst thing because um, the smaller companies are going to be more in control of its business than larger companies, which have several divisions and multiple lines. Um, but there are exceptions to every rule, and there could be a small company that is engaging in a more uh, complex or challenging line or lines uh, of business that probably should undergo the the process anyway, even though it's not required. Let's change gears a little bit um, because your experience also coincided with the you know post financial crisis Dodd Frank Act development, and you're active working on it um, you know from the NEIC in New York's perspective. We had a discussion going back to the early 2000s about whether there should be an optional federal charter or new federal regulation for our industry. 
uh, NAMIC uh, believed, and, and still uh, our policy is that we need to have a reform system of state insurance regulation, but a federal regulator would not be uh, a positive development. Uh, we did get the uh, Federal Insurance Office, though, as part of uh, Dodd-Frank. And uh, so I guess I'd ask, what's your view of, of FIO today? Uh, it's had some, uh, well, two leaders. It's right now leader-less as uh, they look to fill the role of FIO director. But um, what do you think? Is FIO a, a positive development, negative, or maybe a little of both? Well, at the time it was being debated, uh, I met with several people from the NAIC, uh, with the Treasury, uh, to discuss the potential role of that department. Um, I felt that we did need something, a department at the federal level, because the state regulators are not able to uh, engage or enter binding uh, agreements uh, with other companies. We get have memorandums of understanding, but we can't. Uh, enter a binding agreement. So we needed something at the uh, at the federal level, but it was very important that it number one not be another regulatory or supervisory arm uh, in, in, with respect to the insurance uh, industry. And I also felt strongly um, they should really coordinate, or this department is at the time the proposed department um, should coordinate very closely with the NEIC. Um, so they really speak to the extent possible, and it's not always the case with one voice. Because if they are going in, in different or uncertain directions, um, that they'll basically um, derail uh, each other uh, on any given issue. Uh, so I think it's, it's very important that there is collaboration. Um, I know the first uh, director, Mike McGrath, um, you know, was a, a, a director, uh, was a commissioner of insurance uh, and, and part of the uh, NAIC, so he knew full well uh, what was involved there. Um, the administration, I think, had uh, certain objectives they wanted uh, him to uh, fulfill uh, in his role as the first uh, director of the FIO, um, you know, which he did. Um, there were there were some uh, periods of uh, uh, we'll say um, angst <laughs> or where uh, there was some um, differences of opinion between uh, what he thought the role of the department was and what the um, and what the uh, NEIC felt um, you know but in the end they came to you know an understanding uh, of where each was um, but, but again I think. We can't escape the fact that some offices need at the federal level, whether it's a separate office and it went by a bunch of different acronyms early on, but whether it remains the federal, you know, FIO or it becomes something else. But we do need that. And an example of that was was the was the covered agreement that was entered between the the EU and and the U.S. Right. Well, the. FIO was not the only kind of new insurance office I know you're involved with. Um, really, it, in your own state, the move from uh, you know becoming the last superintendent um, and then merging with the state's banking department uh, and the new uh, Department of Financial Services that uh, exists today. You know, how do you feel that has uh, has worked now with the benefit of a couple of years of uh, experience behind it? It seems to be working very well. Um, it's eliminated, you know, certain redundancies that would exist in, in two 
separate departments. And also uh, it's broken down a lot of the uh, siloed um, areas of regulation that existed in, in two separate departments. And specifically, you know, in the real estate area, the mortgage area, um, uh, et cetera. Also with respect to capital markets, uh, it's better able to um, identify and monitor um, the different products uh, that are coming out there because a lot of the new products are um, more in line with capital markets type products than your traditional um, insurance uh, type products. But other than that, they are two separate disciplines and, and they have to be you know regulated to a great extent separately or differently. Um, you know, with uh, insurance, you don't have the leverage and liquidity and certain other issues that you have on the banking side. Um, so, but overall, I think it's been successful. It's accomplished its purpose. Uh, and I think, um, you know, it'll continue to, uh, you know, to show that it was, you know, a great uh, initiative uh, by the new administration. Well, of course, another area besides, uh, you know, part of the product overlap and the investment piece that's combined, uh, you know, we could focus on uh, cybersecurity, where New York has been a leader, uh, New York Cyber, and now then the uh, NEIC's uh, insurance data security model, you know, are really about protecting policyholder information. Um, it, it occurred for the most part after you uh, left, but uh, again, I know working around the industry, you've, you've been involved with this and, and have opinions. So you know, I guess I'd ask what kind of opportunities does the new model create, um, you know, the, the New York cyber model and, and what types of challenges, and I can speak to that in part is um, uh, NAMIC has an insurance company, NAMICO, that is uh, or will soon be New York Cyber Compliant. We actually had a podcast uh, dedicated to that, an interview with our CEO on, on the process of becoming uh, uh, compliant. But what are your views on uh, all the cybersecurity regulation that's come out in the last couple of years? Uh, well, I, th I think the uh, New York Department did a, an excellent job in coming up with this uh, regulation. Um, something was needed and they didn't go about this in, in a very um, high level way. They really w dug deep and went into the trenches and they met with over 200 people, uh, 200 different companies, um, insurance companies, tech companies, banking companies, and other companies in the financial services sector to try to come up with the right blueprint or the right outline on, on what will be required, uh, you know, with a cybersecurity uh, regula uh, regulation, you know, to safeguard and, and protect the personally identifiable information and the information uh, systems. Uh, now, there are things in it that cost money, <laughs> um, it, you know, and, and that's an issue. Um, uh, but uh, for smaller, smaller companies, uh, are really having uh, you know challenging time um, getting the resources and managing through the uh, complexity, I guess, of it. Right, right. Especially you know encryption and the uh, penetration testing vulnerabilities. There's a few other components um, to it, um, and, and that's an issue. And I think you know the best thing there is for the companies to you know com make best efforts uh, to comply. Uh, and feel confident in what they've done is, is you know, the right thing for the company uh, to safeguard and, and protect this information and, and, and their systems. Um, but that is, you know, certainly a, an issue. Um, 
but unfortunately with cybersecurity, it's the weakest link that's going to uh, be provide, you know, provide the most um, opportunity uh, for a breach. Um, you know, they, they treated that with the third party uh, vendor, uh, you know, security um, uh, policy. Um, and, and, but I think overall it's a very comprehensive um, blueprint or framework that every company should use in putting together a, a, a cybersecurity program and, and, and policies to implement that uh, program. Um, it, but I am, you know, definitely, uh, you know, fully understand the issues some companies would have with the expense involved. And I'm a big believer in communicating with the regulator. And I think in those instances, I would say, you know, it would be in the company's best interest to say, look, this is what we've done. You know, these are our resources. These are our limitations. I think we, we've accomplished certainly the intent uh, of the uh, of the regulation. Uh, but I, I you know, go as far as you can to show that you've, you know, fully complied, um, you know, with the uh, with the requirements of the um, of the regulation. If you do fall a little short, you know, have that discussion before rather than after. Um, number one, I think most regulators will understand. Uh, and number two, you, can't, you don't want a situation where you go in there and there's a breach uh, and you have to, you know, then explain why, uh, you know, you weren't able to fully, uh, fully comply. But I think most regulators, and especially with the NEIC uh, Insurance Data Security Model Act, um, which is based to a great extent on the New York um, reg, but is not as prescriptive, uh, that most of the regulators that ultimately adopt that uh, in their state uh, will understand the limitations and work with the companies. Well, Jim, that's a great uh, point to end on, uh, the note that you know, proactive communication with regulators uh, in advance of a problem uh, to explain where a company is and, and you know, where it's going, what the plans are, is, is always a good idea. We're out of time today, but uh, Jim, I do appreciate uh, your service uh, to the industry as a policymaker, regulator, and, and continued service with FTI Consulting Advising Company. So thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you. On the next Unscripted, Chuck talks with Democratic Congresswoman Gwen Moore about her plans to continue supporting the insurance industry in her new role on the House Ways and Means Committee. And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We hope you'll keep tuning in as we return with more insurance news and information on February 20th. Until then, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.